idiots. Like Casey says, fella ain't got a soul of his own, just a little piece of a big soul. The one big soul that belongs to everybody. Then... Then what, Doc? Then it don't matter. I'll be all around in the dark. I'll be everywhere. Wherever you can look. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy. I'll be there. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when the people are eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build, I'll be there too. I don't understand it, though. Me neither, Ma, but just something I've been thinking about. You're listening to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. From sports to gardening, from good food with close friends, to great music and movies. Provided by your hosts, Justin Ackerman, the Millennial, Cody Stoffer, the Reluctant Gen Xer, and Craig Morton, the Token Baby Boomer. These guys are allergic to big words, but not to big ideas. Profound things will be said, but they will be entirely by accident. getting a tire fixed yeah that's all right so i guess i don't know what do you want to do i don't know i mean how long does it take to get a tire fixed well <laughs> if you read his deal he also is currently looking for a for, ride uh, uh. <laughs> to, to get the tire there so yeah so i don't know it could be it could be a matter of minutes hours days yeah, I just it just got updated just now. He's still stuck. Ah, that guy. You know, <laughs> he right. needs he needs Farm Bureau insurance. Will roadside they, assistance. Will they come do that for you? Yeah, that's cool. Is that who you have? Obviously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we should get them as a sponsor. Plug for Farm Bur- Farm Bureau. Uh, actually, uh, for most of my life, that was my car insurer as well. Yeah, we we uh, well, one of our family friends uh, ended up becoming an insurance salesman, and yep, it's like he said, you know, he was, he was needing to get business started, and so he said, hey, can I come look at your insurance and see if I can offer you a better deal? And it was it was a it was a good deal. It was a little bit better, and so nice. we, you know, we switched everything over for him. Yep. No, I was uh, always always pleased with my. Uh, experience with Farmer Bureau. So I, I did it just by legacy because m- my mom and my dad were on it. Here's the funny thing. My mom and my dad's insurance agent is the father, or was the father, he passed away, was the father of my mom's potential husband before she met my dad. 
That's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <clears throat> but a good man. I can remember him coming out, driving out, and all the way to our farm, and probably three times a year, you know, type, type of deal. So we, uh, we, well, we've used, uh, well, I should put it, I, I have, I had used their roadside assistance a number of times for, um, unlocking the keys, uh, from inside the car. Oh, man. And, uh, good, good use, good use. Oh yeah, we I got lo- it, it was weird cuz it was almost like a Have you ever had one of those moments where you think about something so much that you end up doing the thing <laughs> yes. that you didn't want to do? Yep. Yeah. That's funny. Um and, and no, there was no charge for that, huh? What's the yeah, limit? It's, it's it yeah, it's just covered in the in the premiums. What's the limit on that? Like uh how where could you be that they would still respond? So what they do is they contract with a number of um you know, locksmiths and tow trucks. And so wherever you are, they contact somebody nearby okay. and grabs the call first goes. That's cool. Yeah. So, um, it didn't, I never had the same locksmith right. twice. Yep. And the worst of it, that, that the worst it was, I think I did it with, uh, probably twice in one week, probably three <laughs> times within about 10 days. Holy. Yeah. Wow, man. What's going on? What was I mean, going on? You start doing that, you think you need to get some therapy. Yeah. There might oh, be something like, going on yeah. there, man. Where is your head? I don't know. I think I left it behind. <laughs> I just left it locked in the car. Man. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, so I think, I think there's a thing to that. In fact, that'd be interesting. Yeah. I, you know, I, I wish, I wish Justin would have been in on this call yeah, because I, I would like to know from his professional history. Uh, were there <laughs> multiple repeat <laughs> customers? Yeah, yeah. Who are yep. those repeat customers? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's Wednesday. Any any minute now, I'll be getting a call from George to <laughs> unlock his car keys. Yeah, same time every day. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, no, but uh, Farm Bureau, the only reason, in fact, I stopped is because I moved out of state, and they do not, they only cover Idaho. Or... Maybe it's another state too, Idaho, Utah. Maybe it's only like Idaho, Montana, Utah. I can't remember. But anyway, when I moved to Washington, they could no longer, uh, I could no longer be their client. So there's, there's not a Farm Bureau of Washington. Nope. Yep. Oh. Yep. Weird. Uh, yeah, we tried. So I called in. You know, I was just doing my due diligence and informing them of us moving, and they were like, "Oh, well, we can no longer, we can't anymore be your provider." <laughs> We can't be friends any longer. Yeah, yeah, right. And we've been through a lot together. <clears throat> wow. But so we we switched to Progressive, actually. Oh, the 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 lady on TV who. <laughs> that's right. Was, yeah. Flo. Flo, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> I had a I had a friend dress up as Flo for Halloween. Yeah, so like, I bet oh, that was like, a popular costume. Yeah, it's like how can that be a thing? <laughs> She has ingrained herself into the public consciousness. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll think, let's see. What are, you know, the Colonel would be another one. Ronald McDonald. You know, when was the last time you saw Ronald uh, McDonald? Right, but he's still, you still think of him, huh? Yeah, yeah. Is that crazy? Does he still exist? Is there, I don't is know. There, is there an active Ronald McDonald anywhere? Hmm. I, I thought I heard somewhere after the success of Supersize Me 
and the the section where it was, you know, he was pointing out how pointed it was towards children. I think uh, they might have responded by either lessening or maybe even doing away completely. Wow. But yeah, when was the last time? I don't know. That just doesn't seem right. <laughs> we need a clown peddling junk food to our kids. <laughs> we need that. <laughs> Well, I can still, uh, can you still sing the little jingle? There always be a friend wearing big red shoes if you oh. believe in magic. Wow. No, Remember? I don't, I don't so, have that one. No. <laughs> so there, well, I mean, obviously that's a, it was a song from the sixties or something, but they, uh, you know, rewrote the song lyrics for, to be a Ronald McDonald, about Ronald McDonald and McDonald's. You know, let's see. Do you believe in magic? And I hope you do. You'll always have a friend wearing big red shoes. And then it showed Ronald McDonald dancing around with kids. So <laughs> the creepy clown dancing with my children. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I guess I, I'm not a big fan of clowns. They're just kind of generally weird. I never know what to do with them. Right. Oh, well. <laughs> There's a, just... Zach, uh, you know Zach Galifianakis, right? Yeah, yeah. Funny guy. Uh, he has a series where he's a. Have you heard about this? I would love to watch. Me Matthew. too. I don't, I don't think it's on Netflix or Hulu. It's got to be on Amazon or something like that. I think. Uh, I I want to find that. Yeah, yeah. I read about it, man. That sounds so good. Yeah, it sounds. It sounds. It sounds like he's um, inherited the Robin Williams mantle. Yeah, yeah. Oh kind yeah. Of the, kind, of the, kind of the sad clown, but definitely the clown. Right. Yeah, he's a funny guy. I've always appreciated Zach Galifianakis. Oh. By the way, I have a new computer, so. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Wow. What'd you get? I got an Acer. Oh, okay. So you stayed with a PC rather than going yeah. to Apple. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you know, man, I'm 36 years old. I'm not learning anything new. <laughs> <laughs> man. Yeah. For some reason, I didn't think you were that old. Okay. <laughs> Come on, man. I mean, that's getting up there. You're not far from 40. I know. You're getting to that age where you start, start rounding up. No. Like five years. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Not me. I, I started doing that, and then every once in a while I got confused how old I was. All right. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> it's like, you know, by the time you're 36, it really feels like 40, so start calling yourself 40. Oh, yeah, about 40. Oh, no. Then when you're 43, yeah, I'm, I'm 45, you know, just right. that uh, way, you know, whatever. That's, that way it's not a surprise when it, when it finally I'm, happens. I'm prepping for it. Yeah, I know. I'm mentally, I'm mentally prepped for that, but, uh, still, you know, you know, it's, it is, it, it in, in uh, hindsight, I think there comes a point at which you begin rounding backwards. Right. There you go. So, you know, like, uh, um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm around, I'm around, uh, yeah, I'm in my 50s. I'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're 50. It's like you're 59 and your birthday's in two weeks, but you're telling everybody, yeah, I'm in my 50s. Yeah, I'm, I'm close to my 50s. <laughs> I mean, in, in fact, you're still close to the 50s, but even when you're like 64. Yeah, so. that's right. Uh, you know, 50s. Yeah, I got You're this. closer to the 50s than you are to 70s. Right. Yeah, that's true. I remember as a kid though, it just it just sticks in my head when I was when I was seventeen walking down the street from going home from high school, a little child, a toddler looks over at his mommy and goes, Mommy, who's that man? And I'm going, I'm I'm seventeen, I'm not a man. <laughs> yeah. I'm a boy, leave me alone. It's like still a boy. I don't know, when I was seventeen, I was like, Yeah, I'm a man. <laughs> That's right. 
Well, I, I remember I, I used to substitute teach, um, and I would I would substitute um, middle school. Mm-hmm. And the one thing I learned about middle school, and I think it's kind of a life theme, probably more for guys than 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 for for women. I'm not sure. Right. But with with you know, like a 12 year old, when you want to do something serious, they want to be a kid. Right. And then when you want to do something fun and kind of childlike, yeah, they're too sure for that. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. And it's like, and I think there's times where I've I've stayed that way. Hey, I want to be a little kid. I want to have fun. It's like, and then then Carla looks at me like, you know, grow up. What what are you doing? You know. So I don't know. Maturity is an option. Amen. You want to talk about the Super Bowl or what? You know, I I had a very interesting Super Bowl experience. Uh oh. I mean, in some ways, the lead into it was 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 it just felt sad. Uh oh. What happened? Well, you know, I, I was sitting down with with Carla. We're in the in the yeah. family room, and so all alone, just you and Carla. She looked at me and she said, "Hey, what are we what are we going to do for the Super Bowl? You know, we're going to like you know party, or we're gonna, you know, what, what do we need from the grocery store, that kind of thing." Yeah. And it's like, uh, um, I'm I'm not going to be home. Oh yeah, that's right. You were on the road. I was on the road. Yeah. And, oh uh, man. And and so she watched. I don't even understand what. Sometimes I don't understand my my wife's social life. She's an extrovert. She's not going. She just she she makes friends everywhere. But she stayed at home alone and watched the Super Bowl. Oh, it's like go go make a friend. Go hang out at Buffalo Wild Wings. <laughs> oh yeah, that have been fun. To community or something. Yeah. But um, no, I I, uh, I I I practiced a good disciplined driving because <laughs> I, I I'm driving back from Portland on first eight eighty four. Yeah. Weather is nasty. There's plenty right. of black ice here That's and right. there. And, yep. Um, but to, and, and I couldn't get a constant radio station. The radio stations kept Ooh, fading out. Right. So I was able to log in on my Verizon account to the NFL mobile. Ooh. Which is probably one of the best things about having a Verizon. Yes, I've I have it's, lamented that I don't have that actually. It, that is that is that that is so cool. But you know, it's not an audio only feature. Mm-hmm. It's it's watching the game. So I log in, you know, get get the game going, and I turn my phone upside down so I'm not even tempted to look at it. <laughs> Listening to the game on on the on the Bluetooth and the on the car radio. So that's that's all cool. And then I hear everybody going nuts about an Edelman catch. Oh man, it was insane. And and I'm like, I I can't look. I can't look. I can't look. <laughs> I, I can't look. Oh, <laughs> did you did you pull over and take a peek? No, I did not. I mean, I wanted to like, pull over. And it was like, I, in fact, I, but I was just so proud of my discipline there. That's good. That was good. Cause yeah, that, uh, did you, I'm sure you've seen it since, right? You know, it was weird. I've seen, I, what, I went to the ESPN site cause I figured, you know, ESPN the next day, somebody oh, yeah. would have, so I got to, I, I guess I got to go to Fox Sports cause I kept on finding places that would show photograph stills in sequence. Right. It's like okay, I gotta find YouTube and just you know go look th- look at the thing. But I watched the sequence of of the catches and I just those guys. Well, also the Julio Jones catch not too long before yeah, that. Yeah, that was a great catch too. Yeah. I mean, these guys, when I watch a slow motion replay of of these guys catching a ball, my 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 hunch is their mind is working so fast. So fast. That's how they see reality unfold. Yep. It's it's moving you know at a slow speed they can make adjustments they yep. capture it all yep yep and how do they do that that's yeah, just so incredible insane. 
Yeah, because when you even, if you do look at the stills, there's one moment there where the ball is, his hands are so far apart. And the ball is literally, I mean, not even maybe an inch off the turf. Right. And you're like, there's no way he gets his hands together in time to get that ball, man. But yet he did. It was incredible. An amazing catch. Yeah, that's 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 good. I mean, good for them. That's cool. <laughs> you were not rooting for the Patriots? You know, I, I not really. I mean, it's just my tendency to go for the underdog. Right. Yep, even sure. though statistically I would have said that the Patriots might have even been the underdog, underdog to a certain degree. In a way they were, yeah. But, uh, you know, Atlanta, they needed a shot. I wanted to see how they did. And just incredible efficiency of Atlanta. At one point, what was it? They had 28 points with oh. 33 snaps. I know. It was incredible. It's just a, I mean, how do you even what do a start. that? What a start. They carry that, you know, for three quarters. Mm-hmm. And then it w- what was so odd is to be listening to this on the radio, or at least the audio, I mean. And, and I just could not visualize what happened to Atlanta Ugh. because – all, all they were reporting was Brady picking apart the defensive backfield. Oh man! And uh, the 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 rookie, what was his name, Mitchell, receiver. You know, in the fourth quarter, all of a sudden comes out of nowhere and blows everything apart. Yep. So yeah, it was it was it was it was interesting. It was it was it was so cool, so intense. Oh yeah, it's um, insane, man. That game was an incredible game. Might be probably the best best Super Bowl, don't you think? It was it was it was good. Now now, so then I had then I had to go back and look at the uh, the uh, commercials the next day. Yeah. So what was your Super Bowl experience? Okay, well, so I we did have quite a few folks over. Uh, well, not quite a few. Um, we had two separate couples over. That's what it was. And uh, what was it like six? Probably ten of us all together. And, uh, so it was fun. It was, it, I, I, I love doing the Super Bowl in a, you know, communal type setting like that with yeah. people and just to be able to dissect things and talk about things from the commercials to the halftime show, things like that as it's going on. It's pretty cool. I like that experience. So it was fun in that regards. And then, you know, there was a, a stretch there where we all thought basically the game was over. And so we weren't kind of, I mean, I was, we were still paying attention, seeing what was going on, but you know, there's more conversation than anything during a good stretch of it. Cause we just assumed, yeah, there's not, not, not happening. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was, uh, that was crazy, but yeah, no, the, I thought, so commercials, uh, I missed a couple stretches cause I was in the, you know, going into the kitchen to get food and things like that. But, uh, I don't, you know, I, I liked them. I liked the commercials overall. They were not your, you know, typically you think of Super Bowl, you think of over-the-top, audacious uh, comedy, you know, and there mm-hmm. didn't seem to be that this year as much as in the I past. Think it seems like the, there were there were some that were trying to be funny, but they right. just came off to me stupid. Yeah, just, there was a couple like that. Just bad. Like uh, the T-Mobile, no charges. Yes. <laughs> That was just that was just stupid. That was dumb. Everyone in our room, and I even the woman, her name is Kristen Shaw, the comedian. Right, right. I like her as a comedian. She's funny usually, you know. But oh uh, yeah, 
I heard her voice, and I thought, oh, this is going to be funny. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> dumb. That was a dumb one. And then the other cringe one that uh, everyone in the room cringed about was the Mr. Clean. Oh, um, I missed that. <laughs> so, I, I, actually, it was kind of clever at the end, I thought. But uh, what it was is, so Mr. Clean, you know, she had the lady, her kitchen's kind of a mess. And she's like, ah, you know, deflated. And then Mr. Clean walks in. Of course, and she's like, oh. And then he starts cleaning around the kitchen. And he's, as he's cleaning, he's kind of doing a little, he's not strip teasing, but he's dancing like a, you know, like a strip tease would, you know? Oh. So, yeah. So, like, you know, flexing his pecs and, you know, spinning around and it's his buttocks, you know, and it's, he's, you know, muscular guy. And you're like, oh, you know, okay. But at the end, the, the cleaning's done and you cut back and it's her husband. You know, who'd been cleaning the whole time. And uh, <laughs> and uh, the idea being that, you know, him helping in the kitchen really turned her on, you know, kind of a thing. Because now she's like, just like, oh, my gosh, and runs to him, you know, like uh, clearly just loves the fact that he helped clean the kitchen, you know. Well, you know, the thing is, maybe maybe it's not a good commercial, but, you know, I think that that's my reality all the time. <laughs> right, you know, right, is, right, right, um, right. I mean, whenever I whenever I. I'm working in the kitchen, you know, cleaning the floors. I mean, it just it just drives my wife crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So yeah, so I think it definitely had touchstones there. But yeah, even the ladies in our in the room were like, eh, that was yeah, they didn't like it. So, um, but yeah, the themes of the commercials this year were big time about diversity, inclusion, um, no. equality. I mean, just resonated throughout, and so. A lot of people like that. Of course, there was a lot of blowback about it. What I found, here's what I found interesting, though. And other people have noted this, so this isn't really original to me, but I thought this as soon as I saw people's reactions, that it's amazing to me that these commercials, none of them said anything about, you know, the current presidential administration or anything like that. They were just pro, pro, you know, equality in pay, pro diversity, pro essentially humanity. Right. And that people's instant reactions who are opposed to them were that it's anti-Trump. And shouldn't that tell you something about who Trump is? If that's <laughs> your reaction, if, if the pro, something that's pro something is automatically taken as anti-Trump. Right. That's right. incredible to me. Yeah. That is, that is kind of incredible. Um, so even, even the, the Trumpsters, um, <laughs> felt, insulted by having a positive human message exactly exactly like the one the one that i've seen the most about it to me this one blew my mind was the uh and i forget the car company but it was you know we're going to pay our we strive to pay our female employees the same as uh a male employees you know that was right, the right. that was the thing and the voiceover guy saying or you know should i tell my daughter that she's you know less than a man at this, less than a man, you know. And the message really was, the company at the end of the said, we strive to do this. It isn't a thing about what other people necessarily should be doing, but it's about here's what we do. And they're using, they're marketing it. They're marketing here's right. what we do as a as a uh, company. And so <laughs> that to me, you would think anyone outside the business who's pro-business should go, okay, that's their decision. That's what they want to do as a business. But I guess when you cross the line is when you start to advertise it because it points out, I guess, 
how other people fall short, I suppose. Uh, yeah, but but they did not call people to account and say, hey, what does Chevy do? What is right? Ford? Exactly. It's, here's what we're going to do. This is what yeah. we strive for. Yep. The one thing I did not like about that commercial is I believe it was for a car company of, um, of, of whose products I will never, ever be able to afford. Right, right. It's probably Audi <laughs> or something like that. Or Yeah, yeah. Right, right. That's true. It's like, oh, so that's why I can't afford the cars because you pay <laughs> full you're weight for all your employees. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think about that, but you're right. I'd be driving a luxury sports car if it wasn't for that. those women. Yeah, it's like – yeah, it's like <laughs> – Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, the, so yeah, I don't think one, that was the, I don't think that was the message though. So no, exactly. The other one that seemed to get quite a bit of reaction all over the spectrum was the Lumber eighty four one. Have you seen that one? That one was so cool. So uh, I, you know, I yeah, I went I went to the Lumber eighty four website and watched the full yeah you know, three minute thing. Yep, beautiful. I mean, just strictly from creative standpoint, you know, the filming, yeah. the story is beautiful. I mean, it's beautiful. Beautiful bit of uh, creativity, in my opinion. And one of the things that's amazing, and, and some of those things, like like that one, uh, was really cool. There was a one for Expedia about traveling the world. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. And what there there are times when somebody who's you know making these commercials, marketers, whether they're trying to manipulate people and pull them you know emotionally or whatever, just the incredible genius and creativity to take sometimes much less than a minute. Yeah. Or like the you know the full version of the lumber eighty four right. for like three minutes, mm-hmm. but to tell such an incredible, uh, impactful story, right, in such a little amount of time, it's amazing. It's like ah yeah, I, I, How do you it, do it that? makes me think that when I preach for twenty <laughs> minutes, I'm just wasting everybody's time. So I could just boil this down. You know, there is. I've heard people say who do things like short fiction, or it's called flash fiction. It's just right. super short. Yeah, you've probably seen some of that. That. When you get over the initial kind of shock of the limitations, it actually is very um, freeing to them because now I'm just I have to uh, I have the ability just to say exactly you know what I want to say now being right. now making it creative yes that's the that's the hard part but still being able to know that laser focus on the message on what it is you know like okay I, I got to get rid of all fluff here's the message I want to get across. How could I tell it in 30 seconds or whatever, you know, in a creative what, way? What, what I find interesting, I think there's an inverse inverse proportion regarding time. Mm-hmm. So if I know that I've got a, you know, a two-hour workshop kind of presentation thing, mm-hmm. I'll go over the material. You know, it might take me, you know, 10 to 20 hours to make sure I've got it all, right. you know, nice and tight. And, <clears throat> but if I want to preach a super really good sermon, mm-hmm. I mean – and I want to make it, and I want to get it done in ten minutes. Yes, it takes more work, doesn't it? It take it takes almost twice as much work yeah. to do it right. Yep. And so it's all about cutting away, isn't it? Cutting away, and then having you know one or two words say as much as a paragraph. Yep. Yeah, that's that's one of those things I do like, and that's kind of the flash fiction thing. Is, is uh, you know how how you know Jesus goes and tells a parable. He doesn't mm. preach a sermon. That's right. You know. It's, Okay, I, I guess I need to learn some things. Mm, beautiful. Wow, so the parables of our day might be commercials. Yeah, really. I think so. <laughs> In a lot of ways, yeah. Well, and, and the degree of conversation that they inspire following. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the Super Bowl itself having just such a big audience, you know. 
Yeah. yeah, it's guaranteed. If you have any kind of um, thought-provoking commercial, it's going to generate conversation for a while. Do you believe in magic? Magical radio. <laughs> Hi-ho, everybody. I'm Ronald McDonald with my friends Bertie and Grimace. Uh, hello. We're broadcasting on McDonaldland's Magical Radio. Magical. Do you believe in magic? And I hope you do. You'll always have a friend wearing big red shoes. So listen up with a smiling face. We're gonna have some fun in a magical place where anything can happen right before your eyes. Whatever you're expecting, just expect a surprise. Welcome to the very first broadcast from our brand new radio station. We just built it! <laughs> there are knobs and dials and buttons we haven't even tried yet. Uh, what does this switch do? Oopsie, the music's gone. <laughs> That's okay. I know the magic words to make it come back. The uh, hocus pocus? Abracadabra? No, just believe in magic. When you believe in magic, and you're with Ronald McDee, you won't believe the fun things you're gonna see. Oh, it's magic. Ronald knows how to do it. He makes it look easy like there's nothing to it. Life has been so happy, it's a dream come true. When you believe in magic, and I hope you do, you always have a friend wearing big red shoes. When you believe in magic, believe in magic. You believe in magic. Believe in magic. Kids, first up today, we've got something really magical. <laughs> a song that comes with its own pictures. But, Ronald, this is radio. Uh, right, not TV. We can still make pictures inside everyone's head. So, our guest that we're interviewing today is Dr. Thomas J. Ord, a professor of theology and philosophy. Uh, Tom, first of all, thanks for being a guest on our podcast. We really appreciate it. It's my honor. It's good to be talking with you. I believe you are guest number 10, so you're magic number 10. That's right. All right, that's a good number. Yes. We say we wanted to make sure we really knew what we were doing before we brought on <laughs> Dr. Love. Well, not, not only did we want to know what we were doing bef before we brought somebody on of your caliber, it's just that we might also bump into you in other settings, and if it's bad, we you know would have to run and hide. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Oh, that's, I like that argument. <laughs> Uh, so today, I, I think it's pretty cool that we're interviewing you today. This uh, episode will, of course, come out uh, probably on Monday, fingers crossed, knock on wood. And so less than a week after Valentine's Day, which is today, we're interviewing you on Valentine's Day. What better guest than Dr. Love for Valentine's uh, Day? I love it. It's my honor. And speaking of, today you you released a... Essay on your website, What is Love? Baby, Don't Confuse Me, No More. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something I've been obviously working at for a long time, talking about the meaning of love. Uh, and on a day like today when folks talk a lot about love, I thought well, maybe it would be a good idea to try to clarify some things, try to affirm what we think is positive in terms of love as sex and romance, but mm -hmm. then also see love in a – sort of grander vision and and tease out some of the nuances. Sure. So then talk to me a little bit about what were some of the things you wanted to clear up 
when people talk about love and how do you define love? And because I got to be honest with you, as a student of yours, when you were a professor on the online courses that I took, this is one of the things that I that really drew me to your thinking was your understanding of love. And you used a term called fully orbed love. And I want to hear you kind of talk about that a little bit. I'm impressed that you remember that. That's excellent. <laughs> well, um, I mean, a lot of people on Valentine's Day use love primarily in the sense of romance or sexuality, that kind of thing. And um, I think love can be sexual, can be romantic, but not all romantic and sexual activity is loving. Mm-hmm. And um, on days like today, when love is used primarily in terms of sex and romance, there's oftentimes kind of a, a kickback. In fact, I've noticed a few things posted on Facebook today in which people are saying, well, love really isn't about sex and romance. It's really about, you know, helping the needy, being good to one another, helping those who suffer. Uh, you know, sometimes they'll throw in that that word agape, which comes right. from uh, the New Testament. And um, I want to say that ultimately love is about promoting well-being or doing what's good and and flourishing. And uh, so it is appropriate to talk about love in terms of sex and romance, but it's not appropriate to think that all sex and romance is loving. Mm -hmm. And so on a day like today, um, I want to encourage people to think about love in romantic and sexual ways as doing what is positive, healthy, uh, something good for not only one's partner, but uh, in light of the larger the common good, mm-hmm. or what I call overall well-being. Yeah, and so growing up for me, you know, you brought up that word agape. For me, I can remember being taught or told that that is the highest form, the ultimate ideal of love, and all other love pales in comparison. But you don't necessarily think that or believe that, do you? No, I don't. And actually, I was taught the same thing. And that way of thinking really derives from a a highly influential book written in the 1930s that still, even though hardly anyone knows the name of the guy, his name is Anders Nygren, Mm -hmm. um, it's still wildly influential today, even though his arguments have been roundly criticized by philosophers, theologians, biblical scholars. I mean, like, Very few, if any, people in the academy agree with what he says in that book, but his influence continues in so many places. So what I've done with the word agape is to say that although there's no one definite, clear-cut explanation for the word in the Bible, maybe we ought to think about agape as um, basically doing good when folks do evil to you to you to you know turning the other cheek to instead of repaying evil with evil repaying evil with good but then that is just one form of love alongside philea which is friendship or cooperation kind of love and eros which is uh valuing what's good and helpful and beautiful the other and so you mentioned full orb love my view is that we should be open to expressing all these kinds of loves depending on the situation and perhaps even more controversially, God uh, expresses all these forms of love as well. Mm, yes. How did you, so I let off by calling you Dr. Love, and that's kind of a nickname that students have called you because it seems that is the area of your focus 
um, kind of the direction that you've chosen. How did that come about that you chose to be the doctor of love, the doctor love? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good question. I'm not entirely sure why. I mean, part of it has to do with my well, boy, there's probably a, a gazillion reasons. I'll pick one of them, though, okay. all right? Um, when I was in college, I was one of these people who was an in-your-face witnesser. You know, I did a lot of door-to-door evangelism. I would strike up conversations with people on, on airplane or at the beach or, you know, even go to bars and try to convert people to become a Christian. And... um there came a point near the end of my college career where I started to read um, good books by very smart people. And they gave me pause to think that there is even a God who exists at all. In fact, for a short period of time, I couldn't believe in God. Mm. I was an atheist. Mm. And um, it was during that period that Unlike some people who get to that point and kind of give up on the quest, I continued to to pursue the reasons for or against belief in God. And really the reasons of love and meaning became central. And so I eventually came to the place where I thought it was more plausible than not that there is a God. Mm -hmm. And at the heart of my belief in a God is this notion is the idea that God is love and that we ought to love and that the world and the universe can't make good sense if love is not somehow at the very center of it all. Hmm. That's good. And how has that kind of direction then changed your, you theologically? So you were an in-your-face guy who, you know, had this certain beliefer about God. You moved to atheism and then love now. So everything kind of seems rooted in this love. What theological doors or passages, passageways have that, has that led you to? Well, this is another good question that I could answer in 25 different <laughs> ways. Uh, but because I started thinking primarily in terms of God as being uh, one who loves and in whom love comes first, I started thinking of the other divine attributes in light of love, the way the world works in light of love, how I ought to act toward others, not only sort of ethically, but in terms of my demeanor when I talk and what I expect out of others, trying to give charitable interpretations to what other people say, uh, trying to listen instead of impose my views on everybody all the time, right. <laughs> um, things like that. I mean, it's pretty, pretty wide reaching. And it's not as if I was unloving before this. It's just right. that I, this became the core concern, the orienting uh, motif of how I thought about God and thought about life. You know, in a, a broad sense, then that's kind of led you to what what many people call an open and relational view of God. Can you kind of describe that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm an open and relational theologian, and uh, what that means is that I think God is a relational God who is a giving and receiving. Uh, God is not a metaphysical iceberg, some sort of aloof, static thing or it, but God is personal. God's relational. And that means that what I do really has an impact, makes an influence on God, and God obviously makes an influence and has an impact upon me. Also, it means, uh, as an open 
theologian that I think God is best understood as timeful rather than timeless, mm. which means that God experiences time in some way analogous to the way we experience time, moment by moment in succession. And that then also means that the future is really the future for God as well. And so the future is a realm of possibilities, and God knows all the possibilities. But God can't know with absolute certainty which of the possibilities will become actual, to use the philosophical sure. language. Yeah. Um, and so that's kind of many of the components of being an open and relational theologian. In many ways, this connects, I think, to another um, another, oh, I don't know, facet that interests me in, in the work that you're doing, and it's that you and other open theologians as well embrace other disciplines. So, for example, science. I love that you talk about science that, that informs your thought. Uh, where did you begin to really take an interest in science uh, as, in, as informational for your the theological views? Yeah, I... I've always been had some interest in science, but in terms of thinking carefully about theological issues as informed by science, it really wasn't until I was in college and graduate school that I started doing that seriously. Um, and of course, there's tons of question marks there. There's all kinds of avenues to explore. Um, but I, I guess I kind of had this sense that if God was creator and if somehow the natural world can tell us something about who God is, which it seems to me is pretty obvious from Scripture, then I needed to take seriously the natural world, including the hard and soft sciences, um, and um, and really not just the sciences, but the, the arts and the humanities and, and other disciplines. Yeah, would you, um, would you say then that... Uh your uh, love for science has, I don't know, like, so you're working on some stuff coming up that tax, uh, tackles a really tough issue that people, I think, have debated for a long time, and that's the issue of creation. Um, yeah. And you are tackling a sacred cow, I would say, and that would be <laughs> the idea of creatio ex nihilo, or creation out of nothing. Um, talk to us a little bit about the work you're doing there. Yeah, I mean, the, the basic question that folks who are religious and not religious have asked is, why is there something rather than nothing? And the standard Christian answer has been, there is something because at one time there was a God, and for some reason this God decided to create a world, and this creating was not out of something, and not out of God's self, but was just out of nothing. It's not actually a, a view we find explicitly stated in the Bible, and it wasn't until the 3rd or 4th century that the Christian church began to adopt this view. But today, it is by far the most common view, not only held by folks in the pews, but uh, amongst scholars as well. And um, I, for the last 20 years or so, have been wrestling with this and and come to think that the idea that God creates out of absolute nothingness uh, is not a good way to think. And so I'm proposing a different view, which uh, basically says God is always creating out of uh, that which God previously created uh, as an act of love in God's nature. Uh, 
And so um, I'm proposing a, a wild idea that there was no beginning to God's creating, but God's creating has been going on uh, everlastingly. Yeah, you connected it to your idea of love there, is God is loving. Why, why is that uh, distinction necessary? Why, why couldn't God, as a loving God, um, create out of nothing? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. There's about three or four reasons. One of them has to do with the problem of evil. And uh, the problem of evil says, you know, why would a loving and powerful God not prevent the genuine evils of the world? Well, if you believe in creation out of nothing, then it seems to me you're committed to the idea that God has unlimited power or at least could create something from nothing in the present uh, anytime God wanted to. Hmm. But if you think that, then you have to wonder why God doesn't do that a whole lot to prevent the real genuine evils of the world. So part of my reason for beginning to doubt the traditional view that God created out of nothing had to do with the view of God's power that's entailed in that in that particular perspective. Another reason is that I think love is inherently relational and seeks cooperation rather than uh, coercion. And so if you think about uh, God's creating in the world as involving creaturely action, that creatures are created co-creators, then love plays a central role as, uh, there as well. Or uh, a third reason, um, you know, the um, there's been a strong part of the Christian tradition as uh, probably best illustrated in the Westminster Confession mm -hmm. that said that God's ultimate motive for creating the universe was to get glory from the creatures. God mm -hmm. created for God's own glory, and it's our role to give God glory. And I just think that's the boneheaded way of looking at things. Because <laughs> um, it sounds like, you know, God's just all in it for God's own self. And I think God's motive ought to be love. And so thinking in terms of love is the motive for God's creating. Uh, that's also tended me in a different kind of direction. So there's the three quick ones. There you go. Now, boneheaded, was that very loving, Dr. Tom? <laughs> no, it wasn't. That was not very kind. <laughs> no, actually, you did, uh, in your answer there, you mentioned, and, and you brought it up earlier, too, a couple times, this idea of the problem of evil, or what, you know, in theological terms, we'd call theodicy, problem of suffering and pain and evil. Um, yeah. That has driven a lot of your work in connection with love, and in your latest most recent book that you've published, The Uncontrolling Love of God, you actually um, begin the book by kind of talking about <clears throat> that issue, that problem. Um, I wonder if you could briefly explain for people, you know, the Odyssey and then the classical responses to it that you just didn't find satisfying. Sure. Um, so the problem of evil succinctly stated is uh, why wouldn't a loving and powerful God prevent the genuine evils in the world. And this is something that not only Christians have pondered, but those in other religious traditions as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the common responses is, well, you know, somehow every bad thing, every evil thing that happens is a part of some master plan that God has. And so it's not ultimately evil from God's perspective because it serves some greater purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, I just can't buy into that, given the 
not only what scripture says about sin and evil, but uh, just my day to day uh, circumstances. It seems to me that God is calling us to try to prevent evil all the time. And so when we see evil happen, it's odd to think that somehow God is uh, that's part of God's plan. So other people say, uh, well, God allows or permits evil that God didn't want in the first place because God's hoping that we will build our character. You know, we'll become stronger people. And um, I think that's not a very good way to look at it because there's a whole lot more evil in the world than what seems necessary for building our character. Um, And there's a lot of people who never have their characters built, you know, and Right. When people are killed or murdered, it doesn't, it's not building their character. They need to be dead. So um, that's not a very plausible answer either. Probably the most common answer, though, is not really an answer at all. It's uh, just an appeal to mystery. Right. You know, right. we have no idea. Uh, God's ways are not our ways. But in this particular book, um, I propose a new uh, solution, and I'm I'm being specific in that word solution, even though it might sound audacious. Um, I'm saying I think I have a way of thinking about this that can really solve this problem. And what I say is that we should think that God's love is necessarily or necessarily involves giving away power, freedom, agency. Uh, It's self-giving, others empowering And because God's love is like that, God necessarily gives freedom and agency to everyone in the world. Mm -hmm. And and here's the controversial part. Mm -hmm. God cannot prevent creatures from using their freedom and agency wrongly. Mm. Um, And the cannot there has to do with God's nature of love being this self-giving, others empowering. Yeah, that word is so... You mentioned it earlier, the word cannot, and I was going to ask you then, but you brought it up again. So let's let's tackle it. That word cannot, is it, you know, people might wrestle with that word, and I know people who do, because to say that God cannot sure. feels like, well, I'm, I'm just limiting God. So, you know, why, why not use the word not able to or won't or chooses not to? Why is it cannot? Yeah, um cannot instead of would not or chooses not is important to me because if you think that God chooses not to prevent evil, that means that every evil you encounter is something God could have prevented, but for some reason chose not to. Um, This is going to make you wonder whether or not God is perfectly loving. Hmm. You know, if you're a victim of sexual, you know, molesting or um, torture, and you think that God could have stopped what happened to you but chose not to, it's going to be really hard for you to really think God cares deeply about you, really loves you. And so um, I want to make the stronger claim that God can't do that because it seems to me if we say God could but chose not to, then we have to really question how consistently loving God really is. But also, you know, a lot of people don't realize this. There are quite a few passages in the Bible that talk about things that God cannot do. So, like, for instance, you know, God can't lie, says the writer of Hebrews, or God can't be tempted, says the James. Uh, My favorite one is uh, when Paul is talking to Timothy and Paul says, when you are faithless, God remains faithful 
because God cannot deny himself. Mm-hmm. And so I use that a lot in the book by to say, you know, this refers to God's nature as being a particular right. way. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> in other words, so the word, you know, some people hears the word, hear the word cannot and they believe that means then you're describing a weak God, someone who's limited. But I, I think you're arguing that it's the essence of God that's uh, right. That's uh, restrict, not. I don't want to say restricting God, but you know. So in other words, it's like who God is. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we don't say uh, you know God is triune, and boy, God is sure limited because God is an 872. You know. <laughs> Right. Or we don't say uh, God is omnipresent, but boy, it sure limits God that God's not can't be absent from Las Vegas over the weekend. You know, we just say, no, that's that's who God is. It's God's nature to be omnipresent. It's God's nature to be triune. And I'm just saying, yeah, it's God's nature to be yeah. self-giving, others empowering love. So it's not a, a limitation of God's power. It's just part of God's essence. Mm. And you've. I I, want to say you basically created a thought called essential kenosis um, that describes this. Can you kind of describe that or define that for our listeners? Sure. Um, There are uh, quite a few theologians today who are using that passage in 2 Philippians in which Paul apparently takes a hymn of praise and talks about, you know, uh, though not being in the form of of God, although, although being in the form of God chooses not to to uh, express this, but somehow Jesus self empties or self gives or self limits, people will say, mm-hmm. and um, that's oftentimes called a canonic theology. But the problem that I have with the typical canonic theologies goes back to what I mentioned earlier, and that is that most of them say God's self giving is a voluntary self-limitation, that God could be controlling if God wanted to, but God chooses not to control uh, us or you know the world in particular times. And that brings up the problem of evil. A loving God would want to prevent evil. So I say, instead of being voluntarily canonic, I think God is essentially canonic or essential kenosis which means that not that God is limited by outside factors, forces, worlds, beings, or whatever, but God is um, involuntarily limited, you might say, but Mm -hmm. it's God's nature that makes it the case that God acts in certain ways and cannot control others entirely. Mm, Yes, good. It seems to me when people set out to do the work of theology, they kind of begin all, I, I don't know, I, I don't want a blanket statement, say everyone begins in a certain place, but it seems that most theological work begins with some type of supreme or preeminent attribute, and then the theology flows from that. So, for example, you might say that some people view power or sovereignty as the preeminent attribute, and so then the theology flows from that, or it might be justice, and then the theology flows from that, and you chose love. So why is love, among all these other attributes that could be picked, why love the supreme uh, attribute, do you think? Well, because the Bible says so, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> Come on now. The greatest of these is love, yeah. my friend. <laughs> right, right. You know, um, God is love. It's mm-hmm. it, Just as I read the text, it seems like the themes of love 
come to the surface over and over again as being the ones that are preeminent. And um, and so, you know, part of the reason is my the way I read the text and what I think the text says. Part of it probably has to do with uh, my my valuing, my appreciation of love in, in the world, in my life. Uh, I think loving is an extraordinary thing, and I'm much more impressed by that than by, you know, displays of power. Um, you know, some of it has to do with the fact that I just think you make a, a lot more sense out of life if you begin with the issues of love, God's love, and, and our need to love, and those kinds of things. So um, there are a lot of reasons why I take love to be the central and starting issue. It's not the only issue, mm -hmm. but I think if you start with love and understand the other issues and divine attributes in light of love, you can make a lot better sense out of God and reality mm -hmm. than the other than otherwise. So in that scenario, can you then put for me like where, for example, does God's sovereignty or power fit in? in the uh, display of attributes or hierarchy of attributes? How does it interact with love and still maintain that word power or strength? Yeah. So I think uh, the word I like to use, Cody, is the word almighty. Mm -hmm. okay. uh, you know, it's the one that's most commonly found in the Bible. It, it obviously can mean a lot of different things and be defined in a lot of different ways. But, to me, uh, Almighty is best understood as involving three characteristics. First, God is Almighty in that God is mightier than any other, than all others. Secondly, God is Almighty in that God is the source of might for all others. And third, God is Almighty in the sense that God is the um, exerts might upon all others or is is influential upon all others. God can be almighty in all three of those senses and yet not be capable of controlling others. God can be the mightiest, the source of might, and exerting might upon without ever controlling any. And so I think if you understand love at the heart of who God is and the others are logically uh, fall in line after love, you can understand God's power to be supreme without having to believe God's power is controlling or coercive. Right. In this view, then, of God, this essential kenosis and love, <clears throat> how do we uh, fit into there? So, okay, so evil, there is evil in the world. God can't control or prevent um, what is our response then? What, what is our responsibility in the essential kenosis of you? Well, I mean, I think our responsibility is to live lives of love as best we can, given who we are, given how we understand the world, given our limited knowledge, given our embodied existence, etc. We have we are called to imitate God, to use the Pauline language and live lives of love. Um, and I think that means, among other things, trying not to control others. Mm -hmm. I think one of the biggest uh, misconceptions, or maybe misconceptions not the right word, the biggest, I'll say criticisms I get from my book, is that someone will say, well, hold on a second. You're saying God can't control others, but, you know, when my two-year-old throws a temper tantrum, I can control her. Are you saying I'm stronger than God? 
<laughs> and um, and I think that's an, a good question. And so then I have to clarify. And actually, I talk about this in the book, but yeah. apparently a lot of people don't <laughs> read the book. <laughs> um, um, there's a difference between God being an omnipresent spirit without a localized physical divine body and you and me having localized physical bodies. You and I do have the capacity to sometimes at least to pick up two-year-olds and put them in their crib when they're throwing a temper tantrum. God doesn't have that kind of body. Now, God can call upon us to use our bodies to do that, and we can you know, respond appropriately or inappropriately. But even when we respond to two-year-olds throwing temper tantrums, even we aren't controlling in the sense of being totally controlling of that person. Hmm. Um, in fact, right. I have a personal experience in my own life to illustrate this. <laughs> my middle daughter went through a terrible two period when we were living in Southern California. And, you know, we tried all the disciplinary actions we could think of to try to break this habit of throwing temper tantrums. She usually did it when my wife left in the morning. I'm not exactly sure why, but <laughs> anyhow, one morning my wife leaves my daughter is in her bed. She hears the door shut and she gets up, runs down the hall of our uh, house, goes to the front door and just freaks out with a major temper tantrum. Mm. And by this time, I had tried all kinds of disciplining, you know, alternatives. I was frustrated. I went down and I didn't do what I would recommend parents do here, but I picked up my daughter. I shook my finger in her face and I said, you will not throw temper tantrums. I walked her back to her bed. I put her on her bed. She was just flailing around and screaming. I took one hand. I grabbed both of her arms with one hand. I put my leg on her two legs so she couldn't kick me. And with my second hand, I put it over her mouth so she mm. wouldn't scream. And in that moment, Cody, I kid you not, I said to myself, even I can't entirely control my two-year-old. I can use my body to constrain certain things about her, but I can't control her. And I think God can't control as well. And God doesn't want to control because God's a God of love. How do you respond then to people who there are stories, you know, that people have experiences where it was as if, something interceded or something there. I mean, there are literally are stories of people who felt picked up and carried and moved or, you know, maybe if it, uh, they were in an accident that it just seems like if there weren't something there, they would have died yeah. or whatever. How do you respond to those uh, instances? Yeah. Well, you know, some of those I think are really important. And uh, well, first of all, let me start by this. I believe in miracles. Okay. However, I don't think miracles involve God acting all alone. Hmm. I think miracles include God, involve God acting and creation responding in certain ways. So the healing miracles, our bodies are responding appropriately to God's action in them. Mm -hmm. um, there are some examples in which people talk about things happening, you know, like in a car accident, they they all of a sudden found themselves, you know, off on the side of the road and they can't imagine how they got there and they credit God for putting them there. Um, those, I think, can be explained by God working with the natural environment. And some of them might just be our lack of ignorance or lack of information too, sure, our ignorance. Sure, yeah. But um, 
I think God can work with creaturely uh, factors as well. And I think a real advantage of thinking like this is that then you don't have to blame God when those miracles don't happen. Mm. You know, I've been to, I've been in church most of my life and the vast majority of people I and the people in my church have prayed for to be healed have not been healed. Mm. And if you think God has the kind of capacity just to heal instantaneously through coercion, through intervening, overpowering of some cells or organs or whatever, then you have to wonder why a loving God wouldn't heal a whole lot more often than what happens. But in my scheme, you can say God is active and perhaps does want to heal, but Our organs, our cells are not cooperating with God. And so it's not God to blame, but it's the, the, um, the creaturely factors that are to blame in those instances. join us again in a couple weeks for the second half of our interview with Dr. Tom Ord. We decided to split it up into segments rather than leave you missing out on any of that wonderful interview that we had with Dr. Ord. Now, we recognize some of you probably have some disagreements, maybe some questions for Dr. Ord. Maybe you're hearing some new things. Well, we would actually like to have Dr. Ord back on the podcast. We love him as a guest. He's a fantastic interview. We like the work that he's doing, so we want to have him back on in the future. But we'd also like for you to submit some questions to us that maybe we could we could put to Dr. Tom Ord. So if you email us or message us on Facebook and write us some comments or leave us some notes, we'll make sure to ask Dr. Ord some of your pressing concerns or questions. Uh, He loves to interact with people. While I have your attention, I would like to remind you that we uh, continue to accept offerings from uh, our listeners. If you've been impacted by the podcast so far, our 10 episodes, we'd love to um, give you an opportunity to support what we're doing. So if you go to themissionplace.org and check out the uh, tab underneath Mission Place Media. You'll find us under All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Of course, we'll have links on the show page. Uh, But if you find the show page, you'll notice that there's a donate button. I encourage you to use that. And of course, we'll continue to find new ways for you to support the work that we do here. We're always looking for ways to improve what we do. And um, fortunately, that often means it takes some money. Um, either through supporting our fees, our yearly fees for hosting, and also to upgrade our equipment. We're definitely looking forward to, do, to doing just that, either software or physical equipment. Appreciate any support that you give us. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Oh.
All right, two-minute warning. What's the question, Craig? The question uh, is, can churches use the political, cultural climate as avenues to making uh, Jesus and the church relevant? If so, what would that look like? And I think the, the cultural climate we're talking about is this kind of agitated, polarized uh, society that we've got, especially since January 20th of <laughs> 2017. Right. Something happened with that day. That... Something happened that day. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I got a minute and you got a minute, right? Yep. Okay, I'm going to hit start. Here we go. Well, <clears throat> the very first thing that I thought of when I heard that question um, and I don't know how far I'll go with this because it doesn't seem to me like I can go too far with it, but the idea of truth, right? Right now we're talking about um, the everyone's just throwing around the term alternative facts and just so much, you know, fake news. Um, it seems to me that right now is a time where people want some truth. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's uh, or if they just like the fact that they can point out other people are lying. I don't know. Maybe that's what it is. But still, um, this idea of truth and sincerity and honesty and integrity uh, seems to me like uh, if there's a church that does that or leaders that do that, that would be this could be a climate for that. The other thing I think of is the Beatitudes, you know, blessed be or blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who are humble in humility. Um, that to me might be a place the church could uh, be honey for people who are tired of what's going on right now. And my time is up. Wow, that's that's good. I like that. So yeah, I'm glad you brought in the beatitudes. Mm -hmm. um, preaching the lectionary. That's exactly. Uh, just went, been going through the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Mm -hmm. So all okay. right, I'm I'm, I'm going to respond and. Um, Okay. Maybe push back a little bit. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Ready? Go. Begin. All right. So I think speaking of truth is an excellent place to start. And one of the really, I think one of the challenges here is also one of integrity. Yeah. So that, you know, that, that, G, that, that, that Jesus, um, the moment when Jesus was questioned by Pilate, you know, what is truth? Right. Um, that question it, it it has not gone out of style nope. ever. Nope. Nope. And and I think we as a as a as as Christians need to figure out what 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 does that mean for us to think about that? Because mm. and, and whose truth are we going to um, use? Uh, who, whose evidence are we going to use to to claim truth? Right. And. And what I what I worry about is churches groping for things that will support their pre-existing biases. Yes. And so I want to make sure that the church, kind of in agreement with you on this thing of truth, uh, gets gets itself grounded. Right. Because if, if if we don't get grounded, then we're just going to sway with whatever political movement comes along. Yeah. Kind of like yeah, very true. In the book of James about the two-minded the man the two-minded man, you know, yep. going yep. back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, so agreement, but push back a little. Time's up. There we go. Nailed it. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Right. That was something I uh, I totally uh, wanted to highlight and I forgot to. But the idea of like, yeah, not being swayed by quote unquote truth, but yeah. being grounded in the truth, you know. And Jesus 
Jesus, you know, he said, I yeah. am the truth, you know? Yeah, right? and, that, and that's and the thing is, that's an existential more than an objective truth. Exactly, exactly. And, and that doesn't feel good in a in a postmodern age. Right, it's very true. Because um, as an existential truth, it means anybody's going to grab onto a portion of it and call it the whole thing. Exactly. Uh, my truth, you know, you got your truth, I got my truth. And while that's real, that's not all there is. Yes, Oh, oh. 